Hello and welcome to episode, is it 583? I think it's 583 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and right now you're hearing a song called Volcanic Stomp. It's a new song from the new album, Concrete Carver, from the band The Volcanics, which you can find at High Tide Recordings. Bandcamp.com, or just look up the Volcanics. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. After you've checked out the entire album, it's an awesome album. You can pick it up uh, digitally for 12 bucks over at Bandcamp. Just came out uh, last month. This not too long ago, just a few days ago. Really, it's a great song. The whole album's great, but I really like this one. Anyway, you're going to hear it in its entirety at the end of the show. How's it going, everybody? This week on the show, we are talking about a monster movie from the 1970s. I mean, it's 1971, but it's still technically the 1970s. It's Octoman, starring Kerwin Sinbad Matthews and Jeff Morrow. And it's directed by one of the writers of Creature from the Black Lagoon, Harry Essex. And it's, it's a movie. It's actually a fun movie, and I'm going to talk about it with my guest this week, fellow podcaster who just hit one heck of a milestone, Christopher Page. He'll tell you about the milestone in our conversation when I have him here on the show here in a few minutes. We also have, of course, more Beta Capsule Review, more Ultra Goodness with Mark Madsky and Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And I know I've been promising it. I've got some feedback. You know what? We're going to do the feedback first. We're going to get into this. This is some feedback that we received from Captain Billy, longtime listener of the show, longtime voicemailer of the show. And even though he says something about this, no, Captain Billy, it's not your fault that the voicemail line had to be revived with a new phone number. It's not your fault the old number just kind of went away due to inactivity. It's just we don't get a lot of voicemails, which makes your voicemails even that much more, well, special. So thank you for calling in. We're going to get to that. Uh, He's got a couple of things that he wants to bring up. So I'm going to play those voicemails, and uh, then we'll get to the rest of the show, and that's going to happen right about now. It's time. It's time? Yes, it's time. It's It's time time for for Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio Radio Mail Call. Call. Hello, hello, Lex, yes, Dad, hello. Yes, Dad, thank you very much for talking about my movie, Conan. Thank you for talking about my movie, Conan, when I had the muscles, like, running around. I had the muscles, you were a wonderful show. Thank you very much for talking about my wonderful movie and your wonderful show, Dad. I had the big muscles in this movie. I ran around, I had the sword, and I had the loincloth, and I ran around with my big muscles with the sword and the Conan. Oh, I was running around with the Conan, and I was running around with the, yeah, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Darth Vader man, I mean, the Darth Vader man, running around with the big muscles and the loincloth and the sword, and I was running around, and I was so young, and I was so beautiful, like your beautiful Beth, is a lovely, beautiful woman, you're very lucky, you're a very lucky man, Dad, you're very, very lucky. Okay, that was not Captain Billy. <laughs> Uh, and I didn't even bother trying to run that through the different filters and software that I have here. Cause I have a feeling that with the thick accent, um, it, it wouldn't have come through very clearly, but thank you for calling. And, and I appreciate your support of the show as I support your movie, Mr. Schwarzenegger. Okay. Let's get to the, the rest of the feedback from Captain Billy. He has this to say, here we go. Hey Derek. Hey group. Captain Billy here. Uh, apparently it's my fault, I guess, that the, uh, Google 
phone number got turned off from inactivity. So apparently I have to call my offense. I, I somehow I feel responsible for this. So, so now I'm calling. Uh, just to catch everybody up on uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Derek's favorite show. I don't know, you know, if, if you live in a bubble, you've probably heard by now that the show is on, uh, I have to download and watch it through the app now, the Googleplex. So if you go to msp3k.com, it'll tell you all about how to sign up for the Googleplex. Um, I, there were, you could at one point watch all the, most of the last, the first 10 seasons through the Googleplex for free as long as you signed up with a name and an email. I don't know if that's still true. I think it is. But if you sign up, there were two ways to I granted, this started back in May. And again, phone number has been working. So this started back in May. You there, you signed up back in May. There were two. It was a summer pass and a full pass. Full pass was good all the way up until February. The summer pass, I think, ended in September. So the idea was to get sample. Maybe you, know, maybe you were getting familiar with the show. So, um, but the point is I signed up for the full pass. Now, here's what you get when you get a full pass. So not only do you get 13 new episodes of the show, they also go back and represent old episodes of the show. So what they do is they film a new segment for the beginning of the show, and then at the end they um, have on, and they do it for, when they present the new episodes, they do the same thing. At the end of the episode, you get a one-hour um, talkback update, whatever you want to call it, with the writers and some of the producers, and Joel's down there sometimes for what they try to do a lot of times. You get the people who worked on the original film on this little talk segment at the end of the show. That's the best part. They got Barbara Crampton. They did the uh, Robot Wars, I think it is. They got Barbara Crampton to come on to talk about making the movie. They got, um, oh, they did, they represented Manos. They got, I can't remember her name, Jackie. Uh, they had her come on to talk about making uh, Manos. And, and everything that fell afterwards when the show was rediscovered and all the whole new life and making the sequel and all of that. Um, they also presented this new movie, uh, well, from 2019, it's the newest movie they've ever done, Demon Squad. It is, it was a homemade movie, I think it was made in Atlanta, I want to say, somewhere down south. I apologize, I don't have all the information in front of me. But it's a really good movie. It's basically a noir kind of piece with, um, with demons, as if demons were part of the real world. So it was actually very well made. They had on the director and one of the actresses, who happens to be the director's wife, and yeah, we were really, really interesting to say. I actually talked about making the film, and honestly, the people who, you know, the people on the show admitted it, this was not a bad movie. This was actually a fun, good movie. I believe they presented it uncut, and I'm pretty sure it's like PG rated. So this is something everybody can watch, and I recommend this to everybody who's listening to the show. This is actually a fun, good movie. I don't, you know. Um, so yeah, Demon Squad, any chance to get to see it, go ahead and watch it. This was actually a, a very entertaining. So back to, uh, but again, I mean, uh, that's like I said, this, this, this post-show uh, segment is one of the best things on the new Mystery Science Theater, in my opinion. Uh, something's a little wonky because it's all on the Zoom or uh, what's the other version of that. So sometimes the, the signal cuts out or it's a little iffy here and there. For the most part, it runs pretty smooth, though. And the other thing I wanted to mention about Mystery Science Theater, and one of the reasons I called in before was there was a book published, it was probably about 10 years ago or more, maybe 15 now. It's called In the Peanut Gallery with Mystery Science Theater 3000. It is a series of essays about the make about uh, at Mystery Science Theater. Uh, some, I mean, there was a, a movie called Red Hook that Jim Mallon, one of the creators of Mystery Science Theater, made pre-Mystery Science Theater, and it's a parody of Blackbird films. There's a discussion about that and other various aspects of the show. Well, the very first essay in the film is by, and I wrote this down, Rick Sloan, the director of Hobgoblins. Uh, Rick got to make this movie on the cheap. Um, 
In fact, one of the anecdotes in the story, he tells that they had, I think it was a $2,000 budget for the puppets, and they got three puppets. And the guy who made them brought them in, and he said, oh, here's the puppets. And Rick asked him, well, how do you work the mouth? He said, oh, for $2,000, you don't get mouths that work. <laughs> uh, that's, why none of, that's why none of the goblins move their mouths move in that movie, because there was no money for mouths. So, uh, but it, Rick is very happy. The movie was made and it came out. It was just one of the dozens of um, uh, uh, Gremlin ripoffs. Well, not ripoffs, but you know, ripoffs. And it just kind of got buried. It got lost, and Rick was very not happy. But they worked really hard on this film, despite what you think of the film. They worked very hard on it. A few years later, you get the call from a friend that, hey, there's some of your movie on Comedy Central, and, you know, you should tune in, and they're talking about it. And he's not even heard of the Three Planet Theory at this point, and he watched it. And all of a sudden, the phone started ringing, and people he hadn't thought to in years called him, and he got an offer. Eventually, it all snowballed into an offer to make Hobgoblins 2. He said Mystery Science Theater was one of the best things that ever happened to him. I mean, so happy that people got to see his film. And I think that's what goes so loud. I got the gist of all those post-show comments about people. They're just happy people are watching the film, and nobody's come on that show to criticize anybody about making fun of the movie as Derek has this bugaboo about, about, oh, they're making fun of someone's hard work. Seems to me, most people have problems with them making fun of Mystery Science Theater. That's the people who actually made the films in the first place. Uh, there are, I believe it's 11 films that you can't, they have not been officially released on DVD from the original 10 seasons. Two of them are Godzilla films, and Toho is very adamant about keeping their uh, Godzilla thing under control, or their IP under control, and they don't like people making fun of the monster, despite how silly some of those movies get. I know there's, uh, I think it's funny, uh, despite the Godzilla toilet paper holder I used to own back in the 80s until I broke it. Yes, a Godzilla toilet paper holder. Look it up, folks. When you pull the suit off, it roared. Despite that, they're very adamant about nobody making fun of the monster under various, for whatever reason. So I think that's what Toho was all about on that. And then the rest of them are owned by two different people who didn't actually make the movies they are in possession of now. Well, at least one guy claims he owns some of these movies. Whether or not he owns it or not is unclear, but yeah, it seems to me people who have a problem with Mystery Science Theater, other people actually worked on the films, it's other people who didn't make the movies. So you really need to think about, because like I said, I've never, I mean, I can't, I know I, I'm sure that something somewhere actually made one of these films is not happy about it, but top of my head, I can't think of it. And most people who Movie show up on Mystery Science Theater. They're more than happy to talk about them and glad that somebody is watching this hard work that they put, all the hard work they put into a film. All right, I've rambled on enough. Derek, it's a great show. I'm glad to be back on the show. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Gizmoplex.com is what he's talking about. Mystery Science Theater has this online portal now where you can go in and watch so much Mystery Science Theater 3000. From the very beginning. I mean, they've got season one on there of the original uh, show as all the way up through the Netflix stuff. And a lot of it you can watch for free. The newer stuff you've got to pay for, you've got to have a Gizmoplex pass to do that. But a lot of it's there for free. I have such mixed feelings about Mystery Science Theater 3000. And everybody knows that. I, that listens to the show anyway or talks to me about it. I, I don't hide it. I, I think... It's got some real positive things, and I think it's got some negative. I think the positive, and I know this secondhand. This didn't happen to me directly, but I know people that this did happen to directly. 
MST3K introduced them to a lot of classic sci-fi and monster movies, and it became their gateway into loving these movies, like really, really loving these movies, unironically, without needing to have the bots and Joel or Mike or whoever there with you to kind of poke fun at the movies. And I think that's awesome. I think anything that we can do to help spread the word, spread the love of these classic monster movies, the better. I think it's perfect. And that's wonderful and magical and special. I also will admit that I got obsessed with MST3K when it first came out. Well, maybe not when it first came out. I wasn't there from the very, very beginning. But uh, I do very distinctly remembering uh, having a conversation with my buddy Travis when I was growing up. Uh, he discovered this show and he thought it was amazing. And he called me and told me about it. And we ended up watching it together over the phone. Uh, you know, we were watching it and cracking up at the jokes. And I wish I could tell you which episode that was. I just remember there was a joke about switching out somebody's coffee for Folgers instant coffee. That was the joke. I, I don't remember what it was, but it was a good time. And I have a lot of really good memories about that. As I got older and as I tried to make more movies on my own and I had my own efforts laughed at by people, I started to get a little defensive. And you're absolutely right, Captain Billy, that I think a lot of the people that get really upset about MST3K had nothing to do with the movies at all. I get that. I also think that today, filmmakers today, probably would take a different, I don't know, Maybe not take, but but have a different response to their movies appearing on MST3K. I know independent filmmakers who have wanted to have their movies covered by MST3K. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christopher R. Mim talk about how great it would be for the movies of the Mimiverse to be covered on MST3K. I, he would love for that to happen, or at least at one point he would have loved for that to have happened. It would have grown the audience, I think, for what Mim does, plus... You know, it's it's maybe an honor at this point. Where I take a little bit of umbrage is the movies that they make fun of, that they riff, that they poke at, and the filmmakers and the producers and the actors and the actresses and all that are no longer here to receive the treatment, for better or worse. And this is where I start to see... My, my issues with MST3K. Uh, my, my, my issues are it, it does sometimes feel a little disrespectful. Um, I do appreciate that their level, their style of humor, it's not nasty. There's not a lot of personal digs, but it's still a dig against the art. And yeah, you can argue whether or not Something like Manos, the Hands of Fate, or uh, some of the movies they covered in their early early seasons, like Robot Monster, were made, or The Crawling Hand, or The Crawling Eye, were made with an eye toward the art. I mean, movies are a product as much as they are a piece of artwork, so I get that. You know, there's a dichotomy there already that we're fighting against. Um. But like I said, I, I, I do feel that sometimes it does get a little dismissive, especially as the series continued and had a larger and larger audience and got put on Sci-Fi Channel and could do more than public domain films. 
they started picking movies that were more classic than classic, I guess. I, I don't know if that makes more much sense. There's a difference between covering a movie like The Corpse Vanishes, as much as I love Bela Lugosi. There's a difference between covering a movie like The Corpse Vanishes and Revenge of the Creature, or most egregiously, This Island Earth. And I will say that I think their decision to cover a movie like This Island Earth for Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, made more sense in terms of trying to get larger play, a uh, bigger release, a bigger audience, that sort of thing. Picking a movie like This Island Earth, which is a bonafide classic, was misguided. Joe Dante, the filmmaker who is a, a full-on monster kid, Matinee, Gremlins, The Burbs, tons of great stuff. And he's one of us. Did go on record as saying a few times that uh, he was quite disappointed with This Island Earth being covered by MST3K. For a number of different reasons. You know, this movie is a bonafide classic. This movie is special in a lot of ways. Universal really worked hard on making this movie a spectacle and something special. And MST3K wrote a bunch of jokes about it. So, you know... It's it, it does feel a little on the dismissive side. Also, when they decided to riff on that film, they had to make some changes to the film itself. They had to change the aspect ratio. They had to cut the movie to make it fit. It led to some editing choices made to that film that a lot of us fans take George Lucas to, cat, to task for when changes are made. Or even some fans are taking uh, the Duffer Brothers to task for changes that they technically really didn't even make to Stranger Things on Netflix. You know, the changes that are being made after the fact. This is worse because it's changes being made after the fact by people who weren't involved with the film to begin with. But again, that brings us down to, is it a product or a piece of art? And who has the rights to do what? And we'll talk about rights uh, in a later bit of feedback response here. Anyway, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on it. I think today... Filmmakers, if they knew their movie was going to be covered on MST3K, there may be a weird sense of uh, honor being taken in that. So this Demon Squad movie, I I'm going to check it out. It's available on Tubi without the riffing. Uh, I'm going to check it out at some point. I just haven't done so yet. I've read a little bit about it. It looks like it might be right up my alley. So I'm glad that MST3K inadvertently promoted that movie to me. <laughs> <laughs> through through a, a weird game of telephone, or at least feedback. So that's cool. So I don't know, man. I, I go back and forth on it. I know that a lot of people like MST3K, and, and good for them. I'm glad it's there for them. The worst thing that I think MST3K ever did, though, even though I take a little bit of offense at what they did to this Island Earth and Revenge of the Creature and some of the others, the, the thing that I'm most upset about is that it further cemented the idea that these movies are cheesy and worthy of nothing more than derision and jokes. And we have so many people out there who are not Mike and Joel, wannabes or whatever, who go to these movies, and not just these movies when they're shown in revival houses, but just movies in general where they go through and they will make the jokes and think they're being funny and that sort of thing. And that's... That's distracting, and I feel like it it further 
puts fans of this movie, you know, of these types of movies in a weird position. So I, I do get upset by that as well. But again, I know a lot of people like it and don't look at it as a, a sign of disrespect. I, I think without MSC3K, we wouldn't have had Monos. And I love Monos the Hands of Fate. I'm one of those weirdos that watches it straight. I love it. And some of my dear, dear friends became fans of classic sci-fi movies and monster movies because of MST3K. Also, a lot of the MST3K DVD and Blu-ray releases over the years have had some really cool special features where they've gone in with Ballyhoo Productions, which I swear they really need to just put out a DVD of their own documentary work instead of slipping them into various special features on DVDs and Blu-rays that I have no interest in owning. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, uh, their documentaries are great. Uh, I've actually purchased a few MST3K DVDs and Blu-rays over the years because of the the special features, the documentaries about the movies themselves. So, there's that. Anyway, I'd love to hear what everybody else thinks about MST3K. Maybe I'll do a special episode. Hey, there's a thought. I'm kind of scrambling trying to come up with ideas for episodes for the podcast, so maybe I'll do a special episode about Mystery Science Theater 3000, a roundtable of some sort, or maybe. I, I don't know. Let me know what you think. All right, we got another voicemail. This also came in from Captain Billy. Hey, Derek. Hey, group. Captain Billy here. You mentioned my name, so you knew I had to call in. I actually have a relevant question to ask. Is Conan the Barbarian in public domain? Uh, you guys were talking about the movie and uh, other Conan's discussions, and maybe you glazed over it, or maybe I, maybe I glazed over it. Um, I believe Conan entered the public domain very recently. Um, let me tell you the backstory. So, uh, of course, Captain Billy is also a comic book nerd, so he's uh, well aware. There is a European company, I don't know the name, there is reproducing or um, turning uh, the original Conan stories in the comic books. And they are being republished here in America under the name of the Subinarian, and I don't know the name of the company. So if you're interested in that, you'd have to poke around. They have to call your local comic book store. And um, and they are supposed to be faithful reproductions of all the adaptations. I'm sorry, adaptations of the original stories, uh, all the blood and guts and gores and sex included. So um, so they're being published in America, but they couldn't put Conan on the you know on the cover. But if you open them up, it is actually called Conan by name inside. So I believe the character fell in public domain in Europe a few years ago because they they were putting these out pretty well, every two months. There was a new one coming out, and it was a full-blown 100 pages or 120 pages. It was a big, thick uh, trade paperback, not a thin little comic book. But on the American side, uh, Marvel reacquired the rights. Oh, I don't know, three or four years ago, maybe five years ago. They have gone about reprinting all the original 1970s, 1980s Conan run, the 175 issues. They've reprinted all of those, the Savage Sword of Conan, the Black and White magazine, I think they reprinted King Conan also. I don't know how long that ran. Uh, again, not a Conan fan. I'm a comic book fan. Never really got into Conan. I've tried, but just never got into him. So, um, but the question was, is that the Marvel recently was, they were publishing new Conan stories that took place in the Hyborian age, I believe, right? That took place back then. And what they've done currently right now, as of today, July of 22, the only Conan appearance on a regular basis was a magazine called the uh, called Savage Avengers, where they brought Conan into the 21st century, and he's running around with Iron Man and Captain America. I don't read it, so I don't know exactly. But uh, but the point is that my understanding was that they that there's two reasons. For the, the reason for this is that Conan, the character himself, 
as is in public domain. So what they did is they retained all the reprint rights, but they didn't retain, somehow they didn't retain the rights in the news story. So either it's because they didn't bother paying or it's because Conan is a uh, public domain character now. I don't know. But my understanding is that from another podcast, I'm sorry, Derek, I have to confess, I listen to other podcasts. I know. We'll talk about it later. But what uh, the reason is that the, um, that the other characters and situations haven't appeared, haven't, have not gone into public, uh, Dune and, I guess certain cities or, you know, uh, countries or however it works in Conan stories. So that, that, they aren't in public domain yet. So they can use Conan, but they can't use everything else yet. But somehow they retain the, rep, uh, the reprint rights for the original uh, comic books and everything. So, so again, Derek, maybe you mentioned this in the, in the podcast and I glazed over it. It's not impossible. I, uh, I do other things while I'm listening to the show. So, um, but again, I just throw it on the table, and I figured you'd be interested. And maybe there was someone else who was also interested in this. And maybe maybe have a discussion, or just you know. Okay, yeah, I could nerd out about copyright stuff forever. This is not copyright kid podcast or radio or whatever, but I can nerd out about this kind of stuff for hours because I find it endlessly, endlessly fascinating. All the twists and turns, and what is copyright, and what is public domain. What about the Burn Convention? What does that have to do with that? And we'll talk about that here in a second. All right, so. Uh, Conan the Barbarian. The, the there is no story called Conan the Barbarian, uh, as written by Robert E. Howard. So Conan comes from Robert E. Howard, who was a pulp writer who lived uh, up through the mid '30s. He lived from 1906 to 1936. Uh, he was a contemporary of people like H.P. Lovecraft uh, and and Clark Ashton Smith, and he was uh, very uh, prolific. And created not just Conan, but Cole the Conqueror, Bran McMahon, uh, Solomon Kane, a ton of others. Read kind of sort of read Sonya, mentioned that here in a second, Sword Woman, just all sorts of other stuff. And he wrote more than just the sat sword and sorcery stuff. He wrote horror, he wrote westerns, he wrote boxing stories about, well, boxers. He wrote sailor stories, or what he called uh, spicy stories. Whatever he could do to write and make money, he did. He was. At one point, I believe it was, it's been said repeatedly, I don't know if it's actually been confirmed, but of his time in his town, he was the man making the most money. And this was in the 30s. And he lived with the town doctor. His dad was the doctor. And he was making more money than his, doc, his doctor dad. I, I don't know if that's been confirmed. I know that's been said repeatedly. Anyway, very prolific man. And, oh my goodness, his poetry. His poetry is amazing. I I could read his poems just and, and that would give me, oh, God. Anyway. So that's where Conan came from. And for a long time, it was only available in some paperbacks put out by Lancer. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until, I believe, Marvel came along and started doing Conan the Barbarian comics, once they got the license to do so, that Conan the Barbarian really became a pop culture phenomenon. And then, of course, he led to the movies. Red Sonja kind of spun off of that because Red Sonja came from the Conan the Barbarian comic books. Red Sonja was not created by Robert E. Howard. There, there's actually a different Red Sonja that was a different character, but the Red Sonja we know. Anyway, let's let's close off that sidetrack. Of the original Conan stories, there there is no story titled Conan the Barbarian. It just it doesn't exist. Instead, uh, the stories are things like Beyond the Black River, The Black Stranger, Tower of the Elephant, The Frost Giant's Daughter, things like that. They just happen to star Conan. 
when the Lancer paperbacks were released. They were collections of Conan stories. Most of them Howard, but a lot of them ended up being uh, edited a lot. Or maybe somebody found like the a piece of a story that never got finished. So they went in, they completed for him and all that. So it's not really a great source. And at one point, I believe one of those books is called Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Buccaneer, Conan the Freebooter, Conan the, you know, whatever. So Conan the Barbarian kind of became the title of the comic book, um, which is not in the public domain. The comic book is not in the public domain at all. Um, the stories, however, the original stories, most of them would be in the public domain, especially if they were published during Howard's lifetime. So much of Howard's work was published outside of his lifetime. And because of how copyright law works, depending on when it was published, the rules of, of who owns the rights to what in public domain, copyright changed a couple of times over the years. It might not be something in the public domain. This is something that I ran into actually with the last movie that I made. Many, many years ago, I made an adaptation of a Robert E. Howard story called Castaneto's Last Song, which I fell in love with. It's not a fantasy piece. It's just a little horror piece set in the 30s because that's when he wrote it. And unfortunately, because it didn't get published during Howard's lifetime, it didn't get published until many years later. Um, the copyright of it was a little weird, and I had to get permission to, to make that film. No, I don't have a copy of that film anymore. I wish I did. It may be on one of the three hard drives I have sitting in my kitchen right now. But anyway. Again, let's close off that side path. Let's sidetrack. Copyright law in the U.S. works a little differently than everywhere else in the world. However, a lot of the places in the world all abide by each other's copyright laws through something called the Berne Convention, which kind of is followed by everybody, but not always which is why you're going to see things like Peter Pan or James Bond slip into the public domain in certain parts of the country, but or excuse me, certain parts of the world, but not necessarily here in the U S it's, it's a mess and fascinating. There is a huge difference between copyright and trademark. However, trademark is not something that has an expiration date. As long as somebody's continuing to renew the trademark, it, can't exist. Now you have to go through certain processes. You have to apply for it and that sort of thing. But as long as you're following the rules and you're using the, the trademark or the mark and trade, you can keep that trademark. And the Conan the, the trademark is owned by somebody. And because of that, somebody like me or any of the other writers that contribute to Monster Kid Radio can just sit down and say, I'm going to write a Conan story and publish it. You, you, you can't because you're using a character that is owned. The trademark is owned by somebody. I think this is actually what we're going to end up seeing with a lot of of early Disney works, like the short Mickey Mouse cartoons and such. It's, I, I would like to believe that we are not going to see the Copyright Act get renewed and changed again just because Disney doesn't want to lose copyright control of their early Mickey Mouse cartoons. I think they're going to have to settle. At least I would prefer that they settle for just owning the trademark on Mickey Mouse, which means, well, again, sidetrack, close that off. Some of the other characters that appear in early Conan stories, because they appeared in that Conan story as they exist in that Conan story, they are in the public domain. I, I could technically go and make a faithful adaptation of an early Conan story. Like if I wanted to go through and create a film based on 
A Witch Shall Be Born, which was a Conan story published in 1934. I could. But if I brought in anything from any other Conan story that wasn't in the public domain, then I'm violating trademark Um, or, or, or copyright, depending on what source I pulled it from. This is getting very convoluted, and that's part of the reason why I don't talk about copyright too much on the show. I love it. I find it fascinating, but anyway, uh, this may also be why the European comics that you're talking about don't necessarily put the word Conan on the front of their comic to promote or sell their Conan comic, because just the name is owned. The trademark is owned by somebody. Conan does appear in a lot of Marvel comics and a lot of villains that have appeared in Conan comics over the years were creations of Marvel comics or the comics creators. Uh, One of my favorite comic book writers is Kurt Busiek, and he wrote a a good stretch of Avengers comics for a long time uh, in the 90s, I believe. I'd have to double check. Bummer. I'd have to look up something about comic books. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) uh, Kurt wrote uh, the Avengers for a long time, and when he brought back the Avengers, this was after an event where the Avengers were were quote-unquote dead in the quote-unquote real world. Uh, They were brought in again, they brought back, and they ended up fighting some villains, or a villain, from a Conan comic book that was owned by Marvel. So they they had to be really careful with how in-depth they got with that character's background and backstory because they they couldn't dip into the Conan-owned material or the, the estates or whoever owned Conan at the time material. They can only use stuff created solely by Marvel, and this happens with Red Sonja as well. Oh, boy, it's it's a mess. Um, <laughs> but I love it. I love it so much. Uh, and and I could, I've said this before. If I could go to law school just studying copyright law and, like, to have something tangible to, I don't know, get a job or something, I, I would totally, totally get into this. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating, and I'm a big believer in the public domain, and I think it's important. Um, so, yeah. That, that's the... Derek didn't really prepare a heck of a lot, but heard the voicemail and got excited about he, talking about copyright version of this conversation. I hope I didn't lose anybody here. Uh, I hope you're still listening. Uh, and Thank you, Captain Billy, for bringing it up, because, again, it gives me a chance to talk about something that I love that I don't get to talk too much about here on the show. Are you interested in hearing more about copyright discussions? Are you interested in hearing more about MST3K or just anything else? Email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. It's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or call and leave a voicemail at 360-524-2484. It does have a three-minute limit, but as you can tell, Captain Billy left longer voicemails than that. That's because I went in and I edited them together, which I love doing. I love making everybody sound as good as I possibly can. So, yeah, call in or send me an audio file at monsterkidradio.gmail.com and we'll include it on an upcoming episode of the show. ...of infinity, from the world of the sun, come the cremators to ignite all mankind. See the earth threatened by enemy aliens whose embrace means instant cremation. What was that? who look upon our civilization as though we were insects to be stepped on. I involved her in this, and I involved you in this. And I don't know how far I can go. I don't know how to protect anyone. See the cremators running wild, rolling over the land to leave ashen wastelands behind them. 
unrivaled on the street. See the cremators. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Dan Moriboshi's dream of entering a road rally comes true in the 28th episode of Ultra 7. He and Amagi participate in the 700-kilometer run, and the stakes are incredibly high. The race is not simply for fun. The Terrestrial Defense Force has been testing a high explosive called Spiner, but their attempt to transport the substance by airplane comes under attack and is destroyed in a spectacular fireball. A 700-kilometer road rally conveniently ends near the secret test site, so Dan gets his chance to race while running the Spiner in the trunk of the car with Amagi riding shotgun and the rest of the Ultra Guard posing as spectators. Upon entering the field, it becomes obvious that their operation has been discovered. Amagi and Dan escape various lethal traps, but the experience triggers a buried memory in Amagi, and he's almost paralyzed with fear. His moment of truth comes when he and Dan chase an alien assassin into the camp where the rest of the Ultra Guard is standing by. The assailant is eliminated, but leaves behind a ticking time bomb attached to the Spiner container. Captain Kiriyama insists that Amagi should disarm the weapon, but to do so, Amagi must push through his crippling fears. And if he fails, the Ultra Guard will be wiped out in a flash. The 700-kilometer run is a kinetic entry in the Ultra 7 canon. The road rally scenario, along with the dramatic debut of Cyborg Kaiju Dino Tank, pushes this into the upper echelon of memorable episodes, even if those things don't seem to logically connect. A few words on each element. First, the road rally. By the late 60s, Road rallies had become important ways for Japanese automakers like Toyota, Nissan, Mitsubishi, and others to promote their product, and at the same time, the manga Mach Go Go Go, known to Western audiences as Speed Racer, had appeared in 1966, with the anime version running on TV from April 67 to March 68. One month after Speed Racer's series finale aired, 
the 700-kilometer run was broadcast for the first time. Racing was on everybody's mind. Second, this episode features Dino Tank, a monster that must be seen to be believed. And as its name suggests, he's part dinosaur, part tank, and gives Ultra 7 all he can handle. While his very existence raises numerous questions, no answers are offered. He just rolls onto the scene, puts up a ferocious fight, and goes out in a blaze of glory. Not to return to the Ultraverse until 2017's Ultraman Orb Chronicle. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. from unexplored secret stratus. This giant, harder than steel piston, disgorges strange creatures, inundating our world, twisting the emotions of women, distorting our men. This is a piece we got off the mare. Reflex action like a snake. Cut a snake in half and the two pieces go off in different directions. These things take over a man's mind? He becomes a... A robot? A machine taking orders? Join the hunt for the hiding place of terror. Find the breeding place of these globs of destruction. In feeding the mouth parts, rupture the cells, convey the food to the stomach by a, a pumping action. adventure that'll burst your blood vessels with suspense. See the Brain Eaters. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today, we are talking about the movie Octoman. Octoman was not featured in FM, but I did find a cool article about the makeup man who created the titular monster, Rick Baker. In FM 105, we find a six-page article with nine photos about the up-and-coming makeup wizard. Let's hear some highlights. Since the age of 10, Rick Baker has been a monster movie fan, collector of sinister cinema souvenirs, and a devoted FM reader. He started making his own monster mask by dipping baking dough in colored dyes. He checked out books on makeup from his local library in Covina, California, and taught himself the basics of prosthetics, making rubber masks. In his teens, Rick, son of artist Ralph Baker, wrote to make up Master Dick Smith for advice. Smith's award-winning work ranges from the Way Out TV series and the film House of Dark Shadows to the 110-year-old Dustin Hoffman in Little Big Man and the bullet-mangled victims of The Godfather. When Rick visited his hometown of Binghamton, New York, he stopped to see Smith in Larchmont, a three-hour train ride. Smith was impressed with Rick's talent and enthusiasm and allowed Rick to study with him at various times for about six months 
over a period of five years. Meanwhile, Rick polished his craft by making his own experimental 8mm movies. He worked long hours in his Simeon-stuffed bedroom workshop, and he landed jobs in Southern California animation studios and makeup departments. At the age of 18, Rick and another FM student, Douglas Beswick, created the title creature for Octoman. Then, at just 20, Rick made his solo debut with the monster comedy Schlock. He designed and constructed the Schlockthropus, alias the Missing Link, an eight-man monster who eats ice cream, gets interviewed on TV, and plays the piano between murder, mayhem, and monkeying around with Forey Ackerman. I'm glad Schlock was my first feature. It's a very funny and original movie, and it was a wonderful opportunity to show what I could do. Because the story is so zany and Schlock has to do so many crazy things, it was a real challenge to me. It was a great learning experience. With what I know now, I would love to do Son of Schlock. Rick's advice to FM readers who like to become professional monster makers is, get as much information as you can and do as much as you can on your own. Don't just read and talk about it, do it. It's not easy to break into filmmaking, but if you're interested enough to work hard and keep improving your skills, you can do it. Working on Schlock gave Rick the chance to meet a man whose work he has long admired, John Chambers, the Academy Award-winning makeup designer of the Planet of the Apes series. Chambers also created makeup for the Night Gallery TV series and many films. He makes his acting debut in Schlock as a National Guard captain who deploys his troops against the monster in the action climax. Chambers looked over Rick's work and said, I can't recall any feature film requiring such detailed and inventive makeup being handled by such a young person. Rick should be one of the leading makeup artists of the future. Chambers' predictions seemed to be coming true. Following Schlock, a Jack H. Harris release, Rick Baker created, constructed, and played the two-headed gorilla in American International's The Thing with Two Heads, starring Ray Milland and Rosie Greer. He recently assisted Dick Smith on The Exorcist, doing lab work on the demons that possessed the little girl in the Warner Brothers film of the eerie best-selling novel. Rick worked in New York and Iraq on the film starring Max von Sydow, Ellen Burstyn, and Linda Blair as a demon-ridden child. Rick traveled to New Orleans to work on the current James Bond film, Live and Let Die, starring Roger Moore. He created the head for actor Jeffrey Holder that gets blown up and the one for Yafit Koto that gets inflated by a gas pellet. Rick did special props and stop-motion puppet work in Flesh Gordon and has created a homicidal, malformed baby for Larry Cohen's upcoming horror thriller, It's Alive. He did makeup on The Wounded in Caribbean, shot in South America, and A Murder Victim in Bone, a Jack H. Harris release starring Yafet Koto. Rick Baker, now 22, is currently working on the CBS TV movie The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, for which he is helping Cicely Tyson age from 20 to 110. Between films, Rick has created a King Kong arm for a Volkswagen commercial and a mask for the Jolly Green Giant, suitable assignments for a monster movie fan who's fast becoming one of the masters of movie makeup. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. What's a schlock? Well, son, a schlock is a beast from 20 million years ago who eats nothing but bananas, milk, chocolate cake, and ice cream.
Is Schluck strong? Mm, the strength of a hundred full-grown gorillas. Pretty strong, eh? Yeah, but the heart of a puppy. Can we go to see the Schluck? Can we go to the zoo, huh? Schluck isn't at the zoo. Where is he? Only in the theater. It's a movie? Schluck! Widescreen color rated PG. Flesh crawls. Blood curdles. The coffin hasn't been built that can hold him. Dr. Fives rises again. Fives! Wait! Dr. Fives rises again in an even more startling motion picture with a whole new gallery of gruesome gimmicks of torture and murder. See the scorpions embrace. The eagles caress. No! No! The sausage machine. See Dr. Fives outduel his enemies with the most diabolical devices ever created. See Dr. Fives rises again, starring Vincent Price as the menacing Fives and Robert Quarry as the evil Biderbeck. Dr. Fives rises again. All new from American International Pictures. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Dr. Fives rises again. <laughs> This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Listeners, I've been trying to get new people on the show or old voices that haven't been on the show in a long time, just old friends, things like that. And one of the things that I've been doing is watching Facebook for when my friends post that they're watching um, interesting movies. <laughs> and the other day, Christopher Page posted something about Octoman. And it's like, you know what? Haven't had him on the show in a long time. I kind of like that movie. Let's make it happen. Christopher Page is now on Monster Kid Radio. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. It's good to know that I am being stalked by the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't go. Well, I'm, okay. Um, you're the one that wanted to do this with a video chat, not audio. So, I mean, you're the one that's, you know, anyway. Uh, it's, I'm, it's just the way I'm used to doing it now. I like to see the faces. There you go. Uh, how have you been, man? It's been a long time since I've had you on the show. It has been long a while. Time. My gosh, I had kind of forgotten how long, or I didn't realize how long it had been until it came up, like, you know, the little Facebook memory thing, and it was three or four years ago or something that we uh, talked about Time Machine. Good God, is that when it was? That was? I think that was the last time I was on. Oh, man. So it's been quite a while. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no, I've been doing I've been doing well. Thanks for asking. And how is the podcasting going? So so what are you doing these days podcast-wise? All right. Well, uh both shows, Time Shifters podcast and Orphan Entertainment are still going strong. Excellent. Uh, Time Shifters, we've been having a lot of fun this year. We've been running a series the entire year. We've devoted the entire year to time travel films. So that's there we go. <laughs> all we're doing. And so it, it's been a lot of fun just exploring any and everything 
that we can find time travel related, uh, even throwing in some television uh, shows that had time travel involved. It's It's been a lot of fun. I am very behind on listening to all of my podcasts, so I don't know where you are in talking about time travel stuff on your show or what you've talked about. There was a show that I loved as a kid called Voyagers. Have you we talked about that? just talked about it, yes. Nice. I was just going to say, I, there's an episode about two episodes uh, ago from the time that we record this. Tom and I were actually able to be in studio together to record and discuss uh, Voyagers. He was in town, so we got together and face-to-face we talked about Voyagers. That is a great show, Derek. I haven't watched it since I was a kid. So I, I've actually been kind of afraid to go back because you, you have these things that you loved as a kid and, you know, I, I've been burned. I, I've yeah, watched no. old cartoons or old movies that I loved or obsessed with as a kid and realized that they did not age well for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, we felt, so I don't know. We were worried coming into it just like you were there that we were, we both remembered enjoying the show. We didn't remember a lot about the show. We remembered scenes, bits and pieces but we just remembered we enjoyed it. So we are really nervous going into it because just like you, we've all been burned. You know, we, we went back and watched those cartoons or those, you know, those kid shows and went, wow, this was so bad. Voyagers is so much fun. It, yeah. it is actually a treat to watch. We've both said that we watched just a few episodes. We said, we're going to watch the rest of the series because it's just so much fun. And we'll probably co- come back around on it on the show. That's how much fun oh. it was. Oh, man. And so that episode hasn't come out yet. That's coming up. No, that is out. That is out Oh, now. that did just come out? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, I definitely will have to give that one a good listen to because, yeah. man, I, I I grew up obsessed with that. I love time travel stories anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked Time Machine on my show. I'm sure it came up then, too. I just, I love a good time travel story. Yeah. And Voyager's proto-quantum leap, you know, it's just, <laughs> I love yes. it. Yes, so. yes, we talked about that, yeah. Tom was like adamant that this was quantum leap before the yeah. quantum leap. <laughs> Pretty much, if I remember right. Well, I'll have to see if I can track it down and, and watch it now, you know, because I don't have enough to watch. Right. Yeah, I know. You know, fit it I'll in. Add. So, yeah. yeah. Fair warning if you start, you'll want to finish. So make sure you're willing to put some other stuff on the back burner. It only lasted for one season, didn't it? Correct. I think it was 20 episodes. It was never renewed. So correct. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I could think about and talk about my love for old 80s TV shows that I'm afraid to go back and rewatch right. quite a bit, because there's yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. Um, well, before you go any further, let me at least, I got to plug Orphan Entertainment a little bit here. Oh, yeah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to Because. All, we because went down the time thing. October 2022. Yeah? We'll be hitting 10 years for Orphan Entertainment. Oh, dude, that's amazing. Yeah, we're really happy. We're we're, we're stoked. We've been having so much fun these this last decade. And uh, wow. we don't have any intention on stopping anytime soon. There's still a lot of great public domain and abandoned films out there. So we're going to keep going. But I, you know, we're, we're not going to do anything like, I don't know if you'd call it super special or anything for our 10th anniversary. We are going to just, uh, Lydia and I, and we're going to get a, a third co-host that was uh, on the show in the first year, Barry. Uh, to come back on and we are just going to sit around and shoot the breeze and talk about the films we've covered and, and the fun we've had over this last decade. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. A little early, but congratulations. How cool is that? No, man, it's fantastic. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, that's the show that 
since we started, we've been consistent. It's come out once a month for 10 years. No fades. Time Shifters has come and gone a couple times, you know, in the past. But Orphan Entertainment has remained strong. So I'm very proud of that and uh, very proud of the show and very you excited be, to man. see this 10-year coming up. Yeah, you should be proud of that. That's, that's an accomplishment, dude. That's fantastic. So congratulations. Thank you. Where can people find it? I, I want those people to listen to the show. Where can they hear it? Yeah, uh, go to orphanentertainment.com and uh, go to timeshifterspodcast.com are the two places. And of course, anywhere, literally anywhere that you'd like to get your podcasts, I think you'll be able to find us. Right on. Well, how cool is that? Listeners, when you're done listening to this, go give him a listen. Chris does a good job. So uh, in 10 years, I mean, that's, as a podcaster, I can say this. He wouldn't have been doing his show. You wouldn't have been doing your show if it wasn't fun for you. Exactly. And the podcasters that are having the most fun create the best podcast. So congrats. That's amazing. Yep. Nope. It's a good time. And it's, you know, I'm sure you feel the same way sometimes where it's, it's just often more about sitting down with other people with like-minded folks and talking about mm -hmm. stuff you enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Like, like Octoman. Like yeah. Octoman. Yeah. See, you, we, I don't know if you were setting me up for that segue or not, but I appreciate it. <laughs> it. It works. We'll go with it. Oh, boy. So Octoman. Um, I first became aware of this movie uh, through the B-Movie cast years ago because it came up during a – and it became like a, a multi-episode conversation and or discussion and or argument about whether or not Octoman was named correctly. Oh, he doesn't right. have does he have eight legs and there was this huge debate octopus people should have eight legs you know and does he have eight legs and or tentacles ultimately i think he does it's just kind of hard to see a couple yep. of them but it kind of came up in this long and then i was like you know i need to see this movie <laughs> and i'm so glad i did because it's it's fun i had a yeah. lot of fun with it yeah but what was yeah. your first experience with it I am trying to remember. I, I'm sure I came to it from listening to another podcast, probably, or maybe it came up in some book that I read about the worst sci-fi movies or something like that. Mm. And I, I honestly don't recall. I think it's just one of those things that I kept hearing about from somewhere. And I just had to go and seek it out. And I think I probably found a really crummy copy on YouTube years ago. Mm -hmm. It was probably my first experience, my first way of watching Octoman. And watching that, then watching like the the much crisper 40th anniversary widescreen edition uh, DVD. <laughs> two different experiences. <laughs> I, I think I enjoyed it better the latter <laughs> than I did on the uh, the pixely uh, murky YouTube video. Yeah, uh, and it's I mean it's even got a Blu-ray release because of uh, riff tracks. I mean it's it's got you can find it if you look for it. You can find it. It is yes. still available on YouTube and such. May or may not be legal. Who knows? But it's it's, it's there. I would love to see a really nice. I don't know. Maybe a really nice crisp transfer. This would reveal way too much about that suit. <laughs> Honestly, I think the suit is probably one of the strengths of the film. I think it's a, a pretty decent looking suit. Yes, 
okay, going back to the tentacles, there are sort of technically eight. So we'll, we'll go through them. He's got four arms, quote unquote, mm-hmm. that are obviously there. And then two legs. All right. So that's one, two, that's six. And then there's two like calf tentacles <laughs> that hang off the side of his legs. And they do look a little bit like, oh, Octoman, shoot, uh, stick him here. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I honestly think the suits actually, wasn't it actually uh, like designed or co-designed by Rick Baker? I was going to ask you if you knew anything about the, uh, yeah. That's what I keep reading is that it was um, you know, future Academy Award winner, Rick Baker, that he worked on the, uh, the he worked on the effects. So, I mean, they all got to get their start somewhere. Uh, yeah. So, and the internet's never wrong, of course, but the internet movie database does list Rick Baker and Doug Beswick as the men who designed the costume. It's not a bad costume. It really isn't. Not when um, you consider the budget for this thing was likely small. So very small. The majority of that budget may have gone to the suit, but even then you're not talking a lot of money. Even if like 75% of the budget went to that suit, you're still not talking a lot of money. So for the money, I think they did an incredible job with the suit. It looks fairly decent. Uh, The eyes move to some extent, at least with the close-up shots that they have of the head, whether Mm -hmm. that's when it's on the person or not, I don't know, but (laughs) maybe they had a, a, a beauty shot headpiece that they had eyes that could move or something. But no, I, I think the suit's probably one of the strengths of the film. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think the head, I could have done with a little bit more articulation, but I mean, it's a low budget movie and you do what you can and you hide so much of it in shadow anyway. So, you know, it's about as good as you can get. Sure. Uh, there is some articulation, like you said, with the eyes a little bit, but yeah, I, I think it's solid. And the other piece of this movie that just sells it for me is Sinbad. Karen Matthews is so sincere in this thing. Never, ever does he look at the camera and wink. Never, It just feels like he's, nope, this is the movie I'm making now. And he treats it as professional as anything else. And I found that kind of comforting and, and, <laughs> and an anchor to this movie. Because it really could have been played up for laughs. It really could have gone camp hard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, everyone that's in the film uh, seems to be taking it, it seriously. They, they're they're making a movie. No one's phoning it in. No one's, right. I can't think of a better way to put it, but pretty much just repeating what you said, so I won't bother. Uh, no, you, I, I think you. I absolutely agree. Let me say, I'll put it that way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like for, for Matthews to be told this is his next movie. Um, granted, he, he did Sinbad. He did other monster movies and that sort of thing as well. He's a genre guy. But he plays it so straight, man. And I love it. Well, I appreciate that of actors of his kind. I mean, a lot of actors have done this. They've done the octoman they've done the jaws 3d or whatever and you know they may they know they're not going to be winning awards for this and they may be uh kitted for this or made fun of for doing these films but 
there's a contract. Someone said, I will give you this much money. They said, I will do your film for this much money. And they do the film. They work and they do their job. And that's really helps kind of bring a, a movie like this that could have easily been absolute dreck and helps oh, kind yeah. of bring it up a little bit. I think so, too. It does kind of bring a level of... Um... I mean, it becomes a serious monster movie at point in points for me, and it, the structurally, it hits all the right notes for me because it's very creature from the Black Lagoon by design. I mean, it's written mm-hmm. by the same guy, directed by one of the writers of Creature, Harry Essex. So it, it it hits all of those beats for me, which everybody knows that listens to the show and and spends more than five minutes with me. <laughs> Creature is my favorite movie. I I love that film so you give me a movie like this that follows some of the same beats i'm all in it never felt like it was aping creature or ripping it off for me Mm. some of the there are some moments that are very similar you know with susan at night with uh, the one guy and they've got the octoman in a in a net as opposed to a cage and they're having their conversation and just whatever sure a little reminiscent of some things from creature but for the most part it still felt original enough for me to not feel like it was ripping it off. Okay. I don't, that, that's my take. What, I, I'm looking at your face here. Maybe yeah. you don't necessarily agree as much. Yeah. As I'm probably that. falling a little further on the other side of the fence on that. Okay. I, I do feel like it's Harry Essex going, well, I've got that story. I, I wrote all those years ago, but I'll just do it again. <laughs> okay. I'll well, stick, stick with what I know. <laughs> Sure, sure. I mean, it's got, structurally, it's got a lot of it. Um, I don't know. I still feel like it, it, it deviated enough for me to not feel like a remake or a rehash. But I, I see what you're saying, too. Well, um, unfortunately, I feel like the places where it deviated the most were the places where you're just kind of like, why are we wandering through this cave? <laughs> Why are we dealing with this? Why you, know, you you could you could cut this film down to I actually didn't see the runtime, but uh, so uh, I just now saw it seventy six minutes. You could have easily come in at closer to the hour mark. I agree. There are some moments where it does meander a little bit, and they they try they try to give the characters things to say in these moments to build character or move things along. This reminds me of the movie Beauty and the Beast. You know this. They try to have these moments to to fill that space, but mm-hmm. you know, yeah, they could have been cut down a little bit. Uh, and I never felt the uh, the danger or the stakes that you get from things like Creature or some of these other movies because they're just in a cave or they're just in a swamp. Just go home. Yeah, they, <laughs> they've got their RV. They can just drive away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But then we wouldn't have a story and we wouldn't have a movie and we wouldn't have the suit and whatever. So um, I actually felt more stakes for the Octoman than for the people in this one. Oh, yeah. He was definitely the one that I think was most threatened by. Yeah. Well, even from the very beginning when they like find this little creature monster thing. Though he looks like he's trying to get back in the water. Okay, put him back in the thing. We're going to take him in. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. And and then and then it dies. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Poor little octa guy. I know, man. Oh, oh well. 
Oh, well. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kerwin Matthews is, is our lead scientist, Dr. Torres. And I, I never really kind of got my head wrapped around exactly what it is he's studying there. There's radiation in the water. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that really ever gets truly explained exactly what he's doing. It's some sort of environmental study, I guess. Sure. We'll, Something we'll go that, with that. <laughs> uh, Jeff Morrow can make an appearance in the movie and say we're not going to keep funding it. And then that's about it. Yeah, which I loved having him in there. I, Jeff Morrow is one of my guys. I like him. So you know, it, it didn't even click with me that that was Exeter. Yeah. I, it, it didn't yeah. occur to me until I was looking at things on the film afterward. I'm like, Jeff Morrow, why does that name sound familiar? And I click on that, like, what? That was him? <laughs> it didn't even click with me. Well, and it's another creature connection because he was in The Creature Walks Among Us as well. So, you know, a little bit of a creature Sure. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think he did Call, that Bob as Beckham a on. little bit of a a favor and a nod to his kind of B-movie beginnings. Yeah, and, you know, he did, like you said, Exeter and in some of these other movies as well. I wonder if he and Harry Essex were familiar with each other, I don't know, dare I say friends with each other, and he just kind of, hey, I'll give you a role, you know, I don't know. I'm going to go with maybe they were just, they kind of spun in the same circles. I don't, yeah. I don't think anybody was hard up for cash and needed the work kind of thing. I think it was just a, yeah, that sounds like fun. I'll do that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I wore a big green head. I can do that. You know, <laughs> I, I can do that in a day. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. So you've got Dr. Torres doing this uh, environmental study. He's got some locals with him, a local guide who, Loves to whistle and whittle and talk with a really stilted accent that is almost offensive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now that's that actor's David Essex. Would that be would that be Harry's son? Do you know? Are they actually? Oh, I don't yeah, know. It... But he was in the Creme Cremators as well, which is another Harry yeah. Essex project. Are you talking about the Davido? Yeah. Yeah. That his credit is David Essex. So I'm. Wondering if that was a relation to Harry. Almost, I would almost, I would think it would have to be almost. Right. Yeah, especially since he was also in the Cremators, which was another Essex project. So, mm -hmm. yeah, he had to have been related. I, I didn't dislike him. I just thought, if you're going to cast a quote-unquote native... Yeah, maybe you could actually get a native. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I guess it's the 70s, and we didn't think about it back then. Low budget no, 70s movies. So that's true. Didn't think about it back then. Uh, he does love to whistle, especially after the other characters in the cave tell each other that they can't get too excited because they're going to run out of air. So, yeah, he just starts whistling away. Like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but you got the native, you got some other locals as well who fill in those we're going to capture it and make, make a bunch of money I, type roles versus we're scientists, we're going to figure out what happened roles that you see from things like Creature. I, I actually did like the idea that, you know, we can't get money from scientific avenues and so they end up out of almost desperation going to the guy that wants the creature for a carnival exhibit. Yeah. I kind of I I like that angle. I like the idea of someone there for the sole purpose is like of being like the um, 
oh, you know, the guy from King Kong or something. You know, I put this mm-hmm. on a, an exhibit and I'll, I'll be rich, that sort of thing. I did like that. I mean, he doesn't... Knowing how animals and things were treated in carnivals, probably not the best outcome for old Octoman, but... No, no, you know, I'm not saying but I But an agree. interesting way of... Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> but an interesting way to kind of approach it. It's still different enough, I guess. Yeah, like and... That. And our and our lead scientist Kerwin actually, I mean, he he doesn't just go, oh, okay, and go with it. He definitely has reservations about the yeah. whole thing. And I think he, you get the the idea and the impression that he's spinning the wheels in his head of how I can take his money and still not this and, and not have this thing end up in a circus. Yeah, which I appreciate having that extra bit of subtlety thrown into the performance there mm-hmm. and kind of worked in there because it could have just been a I don't know an exploitive kind of to grab the monster and whatever I, I did appreciate that so. yeah yeah and that's something where a, a good actor I'm, I'm sure that wasn't well I shouldn't say I'm sure that very likely wasn't in the script sure I, I think that's something that the actor can convey with just how just the inflection in his lines or just the way he, you know, he holds himself or an expression on his face. Uh, mm-hmm. That's where that comes across. And yeah. Maybe, maybe that was in the script. Maybe that's something that uh, Harry Essex as a director, you know, went to him and, and talked to him about, but that's the kind of level where you get the actors, like you were saying, who aren't just there for the cash of paycheck. They're actually doing work. Yeah. Uh, so according to something I just stumbled across, Bob Burns, or at least at one point did, if he, if he may still, own the original head. Of oh, Aquaman, interesting. Which makes sense. I mean, especially if it was a Rick Baker creation, because mm-hmm. Rick Baker and Bob Burns are friends, and he gave him a lot of his stuff. So hopefully it's it's uh, being taken care of or preserved, you know, because something like this needs to be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> I wonder what that what state that would be in because obviously oh. most of these times these things with the the latex and the rubber and everything that goes into it i mean we're talking about 50 years ago yeah um, 51 years ago now yeah I, I wonder what what state they can say he has it and whether it's recognizable or maybe two different things good point good point yeah and it was shot down in mexico hot muggy with the what with the water and everything else you know it probably took its a few dents along the way in just Absolutely. in production itself. What did you think of our female lead? Uh, Pierre Angeli? Is that how you pronounce her name? She played Susan. Right. Uh, she would, uh, that's as good a pronunciation as I can would be able to come up with. I think she was fine. I, I think she did really good. She was certainly not, um, and I'm blanking on her name now, the creature. Julie? Julie Andrew. How, uh, how, how so, dare you? Sorry. Dare you, <laughs> Julie hey, Adams? <laughs> she's definitely not of the, the of the quality of Julie Adams when it comes to a you know the the uh, love of a creature's eye. But I thought she did a fine job. Again, she was just like everyone else. She was taking it seriously. At least she it seemed that way. Almost overly much. So in, in some points i thought i didn't think it was bad acting but it just seemed really she's taking it real serious and especially with the 
telling him to stand back that like they've got some sort of weird mental connection happening here mm-hmm. now it's like that's 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 something yeah <laughs> and that's another one too where you, you you wish you could talk to the people behind the film you wish you could talk to harry or you wish you could actually see the script or notes or something like that to, yeah. to say were you going for the idea that they had some sort of mental connection or was that something that she like oh what if what if we had this i mean this is the 70s this is you know the age of crystals and mind power and all this stuff was that something that she she brought to the film and kind of did her own if i do it like this people will think you know we're telepathic or something yeah you don't unfortunately know. uh we'll, we'll never be able to ask her and no she, she passed right before this was released actually from what i understand yeah very unfortunately um, and then, you know, Essex and everybody else are no longer with us as well. I suppose we could ask Rick Baker if we ever, you know, had the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> or, or if he Yeah, 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 you won a bunch of Academy Awards. So let's talk about Octoman. <laughs> <laughs> if he would even know, unfortunately, with someone with a career like that, if you ask him to go back to 1971, and you could, he could probably tell you maybe a bit or two about the actual suit or the the actual effects. But as far as like story, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I suspect he uh, <laughs> he'd get a kick out of being asked. I think that's about it. Yeah, probably. So Rick, you know, I know you listen to the show. If you ever want to come on and talk about Octoman, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you never know. <laughs> I would love to get re- man. I would not. I would lose all semblances of. Uh, I was going to say professionalism, but I mean, come on, it's, you've heard the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I had somebody like Rick Baker on, because you know this is all I want to do is talk about Octoman and Schlock and all these other movies. None of this. Yeah, you worked on The Wolfman, whatever. Let's talk about the rubber-suited monster with eight legs. <laughs> hey, there is probably there is probably some amount of um, appreciation for people like himself to sure. go back and talk about, especially if you go back and talk about it warmly, you enjoy it. You like the work and not just, oh, that movie was a turd. But you were right. glad you didn't have to keep doing that. I mean, that's where they probably like, yeah, thanks. You want me to sign that or what? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, you mentioned, you know, the 70s kind of crystals and the psychic and whatever. That's one of the things that I like about this movie too is, and I found myself really drawn towards some of these more out there seventies genre films. Uh, over the years I've kind of softened with my kind of sorted deadline or, or hard and fast rules regarding the eras that I cover on monster kid radio. When I first started the show, I was like, Nope, 1968. That's the cutoff arbitrarily chosen because that's when night of the living dead came out. And I felt like that was kind of where things changed. Plus mm-hmm. night, and the zombie connection because of my zombie past podcasting background. But over the years I've, I've seen that wall kind of fall down and I'll bring in some movies from the seventies or even eighties. There's just something cool about seventies, especially early seventies genre films that this one. And like say a movie like Zat, which I think would be a fundable feature <laughs> with this have. Yes. Yeah. There is no way that you can watch this film or watch Zat and not get vibes of one or the other, you know, get the other 
Yeah. And I, have I talked about Sat here on the show? Oh, I have. I have. I'm pretty sure you had. Yeah. I, yeah. I want to guess that you're probably how I learned about Zat. <laughs> and I now have it on Blu-ray. Thank you very much. <laughs> Happy to help, man. Happy to help. And see, back then, I didn't have the Amazon affiliate link. So, you know, I didn't even get a dime off of that one. So that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, I do, I don't know what it is about monsters and like aquatic settings, but I, I just, I respond well to that as well. So you wrap that up with some weird kind of funky 70s cinema sensibilities and I'm in, give me some popcorn and I'm happy. Yeah, it's not even so much, granted, a lot of that does take place in the 70s. I've tried to explain and justify this to myself and others and and I can't, but there is a there's something about these films that I feel like they're movies that shouldn't exist. There is, <laughs> there's no okay. reason that these movies should have actually gotten made. Any reasonable person would have looked at what they wanted to do versus what they had and went, uh, what else you got? We got to, we got, we got to do something else. But these people went and said, no, let's go. Let's, let's do this. We're going to give this a shot. So you have, you end up with things like Zat. You end up with things like Octoman. You end up with um, the the entire filmography of Andy Milligan. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you go back to things like Robot Monster, which is always, you know, always just has a place in my heart just because it's so ridiculous. And it's like, we can't really do this, but we're going to go ahead and do this. And, that I'm not saying that I love every filmmaker that has tried this because there has been plenty of times that that has not worked. But for some reason, there's just some films that throw in Manos, um, throw in, uh, throw in plan nine. It's these, for, there's just that X factor in all these films that make them enjoyable as hell for me to watch. couldn't explain it any more than that i can't pinpoint it or whatever or why some of these work and others do do not but i just i just love finding films like this movies that shouldn't exist yeah and that they still exist now that we're able to still see them that that for whatever reason they did not just get kind of forgotten about whether it's because Mystery Science Theater stumbled across a copy of Manos and decided to do a riff on it or what. These movies are still here for us to enjoy now. And you get Retro Media putting out a 40th anniversary of all things Octoman. Right. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And we, I think that's great. We truly live in an amazing time when things like this get, you know, the special treatment Blu-rays. Now, is it on Blu-ray? Well, I guess we did talk about that earlier. And do you have it on Blu-ray or have you seen it on Blu-ray? No, I have not seen it on Blu-ray. I, I, I've, I've, I've got seen it on disc. a DVD. Yeah, I've got DVD as well. I don't know if the DVD is still in print. I'm looking right now. But if it is, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, folks, because yeah, I would add this I, one to the collection. <laughs> yeah, I'm not convinced it is. I want to say it's out of print, but I could be mistaken. Yeah. I hope I'm mistaken. Yeah. Um, okay, here we go. 
40th anniversary. Okay, it according to what I'm seeing here, there is at least one copy available for sale on Amazon for 50 bucks. Yeah. Would you spend $50 on this? No. <laughs> no, unfortunately, as much as I enjoy it, $50 is a little uh, outside the uh, <laughs> outside my range. Uh, but if you do have it on the DVD, if you have a chance to see it that way, it is scanned in from an original 35 millimeter, uh, I believe, to say negative, uh, 35 millimeter print of the film. So uh, if, if you can find it, you'll, you'll see something good because uh, it's not just that murky YouTube or a cheesy flicks put it out at one point and their transfers aren't always the great greatest. So yeah, you see it on uh, DVD and you can you can definitely see the uh, day for night switch back and forth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is true. This is true. Um, you know, the 70s vibe through this whole thing, I, I just, I love it. Uh, the, even right down to some of the 70s genre music, you know, I'm a soundtrack sucker. So, you know, I, I love the music in this. Uh, just, just everything about it. Just, just feels like I should have been eating some really buttery popcorn mm -hmm. while I had it on. So I watched it over part of my lunch today. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, I was eating. I was eating healthy, but all I wanted to do was go pop some popcorn and load it up with butter and salt and kick off the shoes and kick back and enjoy and not have to go back to work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, I do agree with you about the the seventies aesthetic. I've watched not necessarily even just genre films, but I've come to really enjoy kind of the seventies uh, hippie movies. I suppose in a way. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, some genre like there's the the werewolf on wheels which is a werewolf movie with barely werewolf in it yeah um yeah. there is um probably gonna blank on all the titles now but there's quite a few of these just 70 films that it just seems like it's a bunch of people a bunch of group of friends that got together and one of them happened to have a camera gas is one i just watched recently yeah again like, like i said it's just there's something about movies that come out with that mindset, with that group of friends. Obviously there are drugs involved. <laughs> We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> and I think maybe that's it. That's, that's, that's the X factor that I look for these films is, can we do it? No, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> is this a good idea? Absolutely not. But we've got a camera. So yeah, let's do it. Yeah. yeah. I, I like I mentioned Andy Milligan, his, you know, films go through the early seventies, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, old horror films. I don't know how familiar you are with, with his stuff. I've watched a handful and I've I've thought about and I never have pulled the trigger on it, talk, talking about some of them here on the show, and I just have never gotten around to doing it. Mm -hmm. The only reason I haven't isn't because I've disliked the movies or anything. I just have never gotten around to doing so. Sure. But I, I do know that he's got quite the fo cult following mm -hmm. within uh, the pockets of, of horror I, fans that we are online. Yeah, uh, Severin just recently released a big box set of his movies. Uh, they they had a they were they had a table at the Monster Bash and they were selling that box set and it was very tempting and I really wanted it but my uh, uh, my better half would have absolutely just killed me if I had dropped three figures on a Blu-ray set of bad oh movies. Oh my, is that what they were asking for? 
Man. I think it was like 110 bucks, which is actually a good price at the convention because I think it's 130, 140 uh, online. But the Dungeon of Andy Milligan, yeah. yeah. So things like the ghastly ones, like a sea of blood, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. And but, like I said, I've talked about, I've thought about doing them here on the show, and I've just never gotten around to it. But he is definitely a filmmaker that was just film it. You know, hey, we're supposed to be in 16th century Europe, but there's a motor scooter in the background. Shoot it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, hey, there's, there's a plane going out of your head. Should we wait? Nope. <laughs> Roll. <laughs> <laughs> there's an honesty to that, a sincerity to that. that yes. And I know there's, there's true skill and art and, and craftsmanship happening when you go in and you digitally remove something or, or enhance something or whatever. But there's... There's just an honesty to the to the raw texture of a film that just they shot because they had the time, the money, and maybe a script. Mm-hmm. You know? yes. There's just there's something about it that just from that era in particular, sixties and seventies in particular for me anyway, that just kind of hits all the right spots for me. Mm-hmm. The Octoman did it for me. This this one, uh, I hadn't watched it in a really long time. I do remember enjoying it the last time I watched it. So when I reached out to you, I was I was a little nervous. I was like, oh, am I going to go back and watch this and not enjoy it? Because, you know, we our tastes change. Sure. You know, uh, as well, much as we were talking earlier about how the stuff we watch as kids maybe didn't hold up. Maybe it's fine and we're the ones that have changed. You know, who knows? So tastes change. But I'm so glad that this one still held up for me. And I will go back and rewatch it again. There, There's a, a cool little... I don't want to say quest element to it because again, they can just get in the RV and drive off, but <laughs> there's, there's this, this little quest involved and they're going after a monster and all the characters are unique enough to enjoy. Even if one is, I feel like culturally appropriating, whatever they thought a native was. <laughs> and, uh, and it turns out he is Harry's son, by the way, I just okay. stumbled across that. I still enjoyed the characters enough and enjoyed their back and forth so much so that it's driving me nuts. What submarine movie was she talking about? Do you know? Do you have any ideas? Submarine movie. So there's a scene where they're like in the cave and they're low on oxygen or whatever. It's oh, the, right. You know, and, and she's telling the one guy to calm down. This reminds me of the submarine movie I watched where they were out of oxygen and they just, they all had to remain calm so they didn't waste their air. And I'm thinking, I need to figure out what that movie is because I'll play a trailer for that movie in this episode of the podcast. Oh. But I don't know what epi- what movie it is. I don't know my submarine movies from that era well enough. No, unfortunately, well, it could have been a submarine movie anytime from, made from the 40s through to the 70s. So you, you've got a long, yeah, yeah and any kind of World War II picture would be my guess. That, that's, that's probably that's what it was. Generic, it's probably a pretty generic description. It was just something that, well, this would be a problem, you know, if you were a submarine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> also, the other thing, yeah. God, I love almost any movie that a good majority takes place at anywhere near uh, Bronson Canyon. Yeah. And and the adjoining park. I love catching that thing. It's become like yeah. a new quest of mine is whenever I'm watching television or film, I'm like, ah, Bronson Canyon. <laughs> I, have you ever been? I've always wanted to go. That is my destination. Should I ever finally get a chance to drive cross country? 
that yeah. is going to be my end point is Bronson Canyon. I want to go to the cave. I want to walk along the lake there and which they did in this movie. They walked around they're, they're in the exact same spot that Andy and Opie stop and throw a rock into the lake or something, you know, oh. or wandering by the cave is there. Uh, that will be my, my end point of, uh, of a, my big trip. Should I ever get a chance to take it? Yeah. A lot of it was shot in, well, the stock footage came from Mexico, but yeah, most of it was shot in California. Well, all of it was done in California, I guess. Bronson Caves, uh, Griffith Park, all mm-hmm. that. And just, and you think even some of it was shot at Universal itself, which is kind of cool that they were able to get into Universal's studios to shoot something. Um, maybe it was Harry Essex pulling a few strings. Like, remember when I did this 20 years ago? You owe me. I don't know. Right. That's, that, that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's what happened, but in my head, that's, that's what I want to have happened. Right. Or Harry still had like a key from somewhere, you know, pulled a total yeah, Ed Wood yeah. just kind of stuck everybody in, in real quick. Yeah. Could still get into the back lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so had some dirt on a security guard or something. It's like, you remember? <laughs> oh, man. If that's not how it happened, it, oh. That, and I'm going to, yeah. Anyway. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I really want to go to Bronson Caves myself. I've never been. Uh, so many of the movies that we've talked about here on the show over the years feature scenes at or around or even kind of sort of in Bronson Caves. It's not very deep, but I would love to uh, just get out there. Um, You're a lot closer than I am. I am. I'm not traveling right now because of the state of the world and all that. And sure. My own health and finances, but someday, man, someday. What I need to do is tell my girlfriend who whose youngest daughter is a huge Batman fan. It's like, there you go. There's your we, connection. We got to go to the Batcave. What? what? We got to go to the Batcave. <laughs> yep. Now I've, I've caught even on orphan entertainment. I have caught Bronson cave in films from the 1930s. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been used for so long and in so many. So I yeah absolutely need to go and stand there and have that picture of me <laughs> in the cave mouth. Yes. Oh, that would be amazing. I don't know when I'll be able to do it, uh, but... Uh, Someday. Yeah, and I'll we'll have to try to see if I can't get a uh, diving helmet and an ape suit. <laughs> see, I don't feel like that we could actually officially call ourselves Monster Kids until we own one of those. Exactly. You know, it's like, it's, it's a requirement. Like, don't tell anybody I don't have one either. So <laughs> they'll come and take my Rondo away if they find out. I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've got Roman looking up or looking down on me from where I'm recording right now. So he's my, my inspiration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is a movie poster or. It is a Mark original? Maddox print. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. Mark Maddox, friend of the show, who someday will come on to Monster Kid Radio, darn it. Oh, has Mark not been on? Mark's never been on. And, you know, I'll put him on blast right now. I see him at Monster Bash or wherever, and we always talk about him coming on the show. It's like, cool, cool. We'll be in touch when, you know, after the bash, whatever. I'll drop him a line. And we'll swap messages back and forth for like three or four exchanges. And then it just kind of fizzles out. Yeah. So, too, so what dates work for you? Yeah. Nothing. Or he's too busy I'd love spend, to come on. You know, yeah, so. he's too busy spending all that time over on uh, uh, Rod Barnett's show. <laughs> and winning Rondo Awards. 
Come on. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. You know, he's he's. I'd rather, if nothing else, I, I'd rather more Mark Maddox art in the world than, you know, whether or not I get him on my show or not. Yeah, he does some amazing work. It, incredible. Yeah, he had he was at the bash this past year when I was there, and yeah, sitting right up front was a print that he was just apparently brand new. That he was just able to do for the crawling eye. Oh, and I'm like, ah, and I didn't buy it. And the next time I came by, it was gone. So he apparently had sold it. And I, I didn't say anything because I was afraid he might have another one because it would just be more money <laughs> that I'd spend that I shouldn't. <laughs> I don't yeah. have any place to hang the stuff that I own as it is. So I didn't need another one, but it was really awesome. It looked fantastic. So I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. Uh, those of you who follow me on Facebook know that I've been putting a lot of things on eBay. And... um it's it's partly because you know I need to make some money for some whatever and and I've got some things here that I'm not doing anything with so I might as well put it on to somebody else. Another reason why I haven't been going to Monster Bash or other conventions is because I've been trying to get rid of stuff, <laughs> not bringing more stuff in. Because if I I know if I go to a convention, I'm I was talking with uh, again it was my girlfriend the other day about this. When I go to a convention, I always bring at least one prepaid box. Uh, priority flat rate mail shipping <laughs> folded <laughs> up and put in my mail, my suitcase because I know I'm going to end up with more stuff and it's easier to just ship it home than trying to figure out how I'm going to pack it all home in the one suitcase I brought. Yeah. Uh, smart idea. That's very clever. See, I, I don't go so far that I can't drive so I can always load ah. up in my suitcase. Yes. It always comes back a little fuller than when I, when, when I left. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, less than 20 bucks for a flat rate large box. Pack all the, the fragiles with like some dirty t-shirts or whatever, you know, and you're good. Yeah. Send it off and yeah. I did pretty good this past year. Uh, in past years, I have spent a lot of money. <laughs> this past year, I did. <laughs> this this past year, I did pretty good. I knew I was a little bit more of a budget and uh, I, I've gotten good at just kind of holding off and looking for, you know, the best deals, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'll maybe pass one person's table to go to another person because up, oh, it's five dollars less. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's one of the things that I miss about conventions, but I'm afraid of when I mm -hmm. start going back. Yeah, because I know, I know, and even just putting all this stuff up on eBay lately, going through and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot that I bought that. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so cool at the time, and what did I do with it? Yeah, took it home and put it in a box somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> So, picked up yeah. a, picked up a few more Santo films because I can't, well, you know, kind of have to. Yeah. Well, and I don't think Juan wasn't there this time around, was he? Juan was not. His table was. Okay, uh, good. Juan from Fifth Dimension Films, regularly yeah. B movie cast, sells a lot of stuff, great uh, movies on DVD. Yes. Yeah. Now he uh, had a great collection as always. Um, but yeah, fortunately he was not there because he is really. Uh, yeah. You do not get want to get wand. <laughs> <laughs> You'll go to He's his table and just try to pick up one thing. You're leaving with three. That's just that's at what least, I'm saying. at yeah. least, yeah. And don't let him pull out the lobby cards. No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I've I've been bit by that before, yeah. uh, and I appreciate it. He's got great prices, but yeah, I hear you. All right. Well, hey, um, let's uh, before we start wrapping up here, I want to do something that we haven't done yet. 
Let's... We have not played a round of the Classic Five, my friend. What? If you want to, I don't. I am not as good at the Classic Five as many of your guests. I do not have that incredible memory that you and so many others have where you you ask these questions and you're like, oh, yeah, this person or that person. I'm like, I don't know what movies they've been in. <laughs> well, tell you what, we'll, 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 we'll take it easy. I'm not saying I'm going to throw you some softballs, but we'll take it easy. All right. It, it, we'll, we'll, we'll have some fun with it. We'll, we'll keep it light and fun. The Classic Five, it is a game that we play on Monster Kid Radio where we have our guests answer questions based on these cards that I draw. I've got a literal deck of cards here with this, which movie do you prefer, this movie, that movie, what person do you prefer, whatever type questions. There are no wrong answers, Chris. You've got nothing to worry about here, sir. I know. I just think it's funny that everyone else that comes on your show is so excited about playing the Classic Five, and I'm dreading it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, man. All right. Well, like I said, there are no wrong answers, and, and you're in a safe space, man. I got you. All right. I got you. <laughs> Card the number power, one. The power of editing will make me seem very intelligent. Go ahead. <laughs> Spoken like a podcaster. <laughs> 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 Who's been doing it for 10 years. Yeah, there we go. The, the classic Card number one. Who's your favorite mad scientist? Oh, goodness gracious. Oh, oh, I will go, if you want to count them, and again, that's another print staring down at me, is um, Vincent Price as uh, Dr. Fibes. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd say that counts. Does that count? Yeah, heck uh, yeah. Go with that. I mean, again, I mean, he's right, he's right above me. <laughs> yeah. All right, card number two. Another what was quirky your... 70s film, if you think about it. You know, you're right. Yeah, something else I didn't think about. And, uh, you know, about the Dr. Fives movies, I did not like them the first time I saw them. Really? Well, the first one. I didn't even bother yeah. with the second one, but I saw the first one. I was just kind of bored. It's like, really? I don't, I don't get it. Oh, now, I've gone back and have watched it. I think it's great. I, I it's fell fantastic. In, I fell in love with the first one the minute I watched it. Really? Uh, the second one, I found myself disappointed in. I mean, it's got its moments. It's okay. It's definitely got its moments, but it it doesn't come close to the level that I find of enjoyable of enjoyment that I find in the first one. The first one is better. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is better. I do find them trying to tack on this Egyptian lore to the whole thing. Yeah, a little like eh, I don't know if we needed that, but yeah, I agree. I agree, and and I do like I do like them a lot now. So. Right, card number two. What was the most recent thing you purchased at Monster Bash? See, that's easy. Oh, yeah, that was easy. You were I, just there. Yeah, I was just there. And I Octoman was actually one of the purchases I made when I was at Monster Bash. Really? Yeah. There you go. There you go. I want to see Mark Maddox do an Octoman print. That would be very cool. I, I can't afford to commission such a thing, but I would love to see like a Mark Maddox or a Daniel Horn or, or somebody mm -hmm. like that do Octoman. Yeah. I don't want to have the conversation with them where I ask them that because I don't want them to look at me and say, what? But <laughs> <laughs> or, or them to say, well, I made one. Why aren't you buying it? <laughs> ah, yeah, there you go. There you go. All right, card number three. Who else could have or should have played Dracula? Who would you like to see play Dracula? Goodness gracious me. That is a, uh, that's a hell of a question because immediately all I'm thinking is, you ask a question like that, and the only thing I can think of is the people that have played Dracula. Yeah. Who could have, should have? 
Gosh. I just, I don't have an answer for that. Okay. Everyone I'm thinking of has played Dracula or a vampire, or I'm thinking, well, what about that person? And then I'm like, "Mm, no, no, maybe not. So. Okay, we can skip it. We'll go to the next one. How about this? I'm pulling this one from the Monster Bash deck as well. What is your favorite movie that you've seen at Monster Bash? Oh, well, that's easy. And I just rewatched it uh, a couple of nights ago. Uh, the Body Snatcher with uh, Boris Karloff. Oh, the Karloff? Yeah. Yeah. Saw that at Monster Bash four years ago, maybe something like that. Was that your first time seeing it? First time seeing it. Absolutely Ooh. blown away. And it's like, I, I, I will die on the hill that says Karloff's best work. Really? I absolutely of everything of, of what I've seen of Boris Karloff best film, his best work. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it is good. I'm not going to argue with you there. It is really good. Mm-hmm. Wow. Best work. I, it's hard for me to think about like Karloff or Legos. He figure out what their best is for me, but that yeah, that I, is that really good. In no way, you know, putting any of the other work is saying it's oh sure, of course, you not. know, sub or anything. But that is for me anyway. I believe that is Karloff's best film. Okay, well, it is good. It is phenomenal. I'll give you that for sure. All right, next question: What two classic sci-fi movies would make the perfect double feature? Well, we just talked about it, didn't we? Octoman and Zat. <laughs> That's an easy one. <laughs> you know, when we're done recording here, I, I think I am going to go put Zat on while I'm waiting for my girlfriend <laughs> to get off work. Yeah, I'm thinking, that one... I'm thinking kind of the thing of the same thing. It's been like a good hot minute since I've watched that. It's been years uh, since I threw that disc in. You, know, you got to dust it off, make sure the disc hasn't, you know, yeah, Robert you got to get a plane every now and again. Make sure, you know, keep them fresh. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Air them out. <laughs> All right, let's wrap with this one. Favorite classic horror or suspense TV show? Horror or suspense TV show? There was a show. It was kind of the one of the what I feel like are the lesser knowns when there was the Twilight Zones and whatever. There was a Tales of the Dark Side. I think it was called. But it was an anthology series. Uh, from the 80s with, uh, was that like George Romero's group? Was it? I'm not even sure. Tales from but, the Dark Side, yeah. It was an 80s anthology show. had a lot of Stephen King stories and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Does that sound about right? I think so. I think that's the one. Yeah, so that was uh, Laurel Entertainment, which was uh, George Romero's uh, company at the time. He created the show. So Gotcha. Yeah, a lot of Tom Savini effects. Mm-hmm. Turned up in a lot of that stuff. He directed a couple episodes as well. Um, and how that came up the other day for some reason or other as well. Maybe on the stream. I was doing 1980s movies on the movie stream over in the Monster Kid Movie Club. And Tales from the Dark Side is not in the public domain. I was looking for public domain stuff. But in between the movies, I was showing a lot of uh, TV commercials from the time for horror products. And there were a lot of ads for Tales from the Dark Side that I ran. Uh, made me want to go back and rewatch some of them because I remember some of them being really cool. Yeah, that's that's what I recall too. It, I haven't watched any of it since it was on in the '80s or probably you know 
in syndication or something through the late 80s or even early 90s last time I saw it. I just remember that was one of those things that would come on kind of late at night. Yep. And it was on when everything else had gone off. <laughs> and and tales from the... I remember the opening little bit more than I do probably most of the stories. But that one is the one that kind of sticks in my head, even to yeah. this day. No, that was a good show, man. And see, that's one that I'd talk about here on Monster Kid Radio. I don't care that it came out in the 80s. I would talk about that show here. Have you ever talked about that kind of stuff over on Time Shifters? No, we have not. No, not, not really. It's n definitely not anything that would be off the table, but it has not come up yet. Right on. Yeah, that's all owned by Paramount now, so there's no way I could get away with showing it on the stream, but I'm sure it's available out there somewhere. It's got to be out there somewhere. I have to think, well, you know, weirdly enough, those are one of those, when you get to the anthologies, when there's so many different people involved, you wonder if it's ever been released on disc or if there isn't too many rights issues that people have to jump through that it's just not worth it. Start running into that in the 80s a lot with just a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, TV and film, because you've got, like you said, the rights and the music becomes a huge nightmare as well. Yeah, there was the... For the longest time, the old uh, WKRP in Cincinnati was not released anywhere yeah. because of the music. And then they finally released it, but they, they had to replace all the music. And then just a few years ago, they finally were able to get, I don't know if all, but 99% or whatever of the music rights so they could release the yeah. entire series as it, as it aired. I remember that. Um, I was working at a video store, a VH where they actually rented, you know, VHS, you know, kids, you know, for <laughs> back uh, in the day when tapes were, you know, you had to rent, rent movies. Yes. Yeah, so I was working at a blockbuster video and, uh, one of my jobs there at the time was to go to all the different competitors whenever a new movie came out and kind of keep track of how many copies of whatever big movie these other places had so that mm. we could kind of adjust our ordering patterns for the next release or whatever. And there was a movie, come, a video store called Thousands of Videos across town that had gotten their hands on a bootleg copy of Heavy Metal. Oh, okay. Which was one that was not available legit, legitimately for a long time because of the music rights. Mm -hmm. The movie was clear. The music was not. And it kind of became a thing. <laughs> Lots of phone calls were made and threats and everything else. And yeah, eventually it came out legitimately. But Right. For a long time, you couldn't get it in this company. Interesting. How dare they? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's one of those things I've I've just, I've never come across a, you know, Tales of the Dark Side, the complete series or anything. Um, and I honestly probably hadn't really thought to look, but that would be something I, I think I would have stumbled across at the library or in my meanderings through any conventions or anything. And I've I've not seen it. So according to the site Rewind over at dvdcompare.net, there have been some season releases from back in 2009. Mm, okay. But whether or not they're still available. Right. Who knows? Interesting. Now I kind of want to go track that stuff down. <laughs> so close, close the, the tab, Derek. Close the tab. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay, you're right. You're right. Closing the tab. <laughs> Closing this episode of the podcast by asking if you have any final words about Octoman. 
No, I think we've said it all. It is. It's a fun watch. It's a great, like you said, early seventies. Um, kitsch might be the right word. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a little bit of kitsch, a little bit of camp, kind of a cool monster. Yeah, don't don't watch it uh, expecting to take it seriously. I mean, do have you know tongue firmly in cheek kind of thing. Um, but watch it maybe with friends, grab some adult beverages if that's your thing and yeah, just have a, just have a little bit of fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah, you'd be I surprised. Think I think it. there's moments where you'll go, Oh, well that was actually pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it was over, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm glad I went back and rewatched this and looking forward to talking to Christopher about it. And yeah, it was, it was a good time. And yeah. I think that's really the best way to say it. It's, it's a good time. It, it's a very good time and you know you, you'll be impressed i think with the creature suit you'll laugh at the uh mannequin getting thrown off the cliff uh <laughs> forgot about that you're right <laughs> that does happen <laughs> but it, it's, it's got a little bit of something for everyone there you go if you love your mannequin deaths <laughs> all right one more time orphan entertainment where they where can the and time shifters where can people find it Yep. Yeah. Please. It's like I said, anywhere where you get your podcast, just look for orphaned entertainment or go to orphanentertainment.com or go to timeshifterspodcast.com. You go to either of those sites, there will be links to the other. So it's all cross connected. And uh, we have, uh, we're on all the socials and you can find uh, the links there. You go to any of our episodes, there's a great little link tree link that will link to all our social media and all the, the websites and you know, if you want to help us uh, financially, there's a link to do that too. <laughs> right on. Well, I will make sure there's a link in the show notes to everything that you just mentioned. We'll make sure people can check it out and support you. I'm down for that. I uh, want to spread the uh, enthusiasm for some podcasts from podcasters who know what they're doing and are having a good time doing it. So. I, when, I certainly appreciate it. The one who speaks for them... Let them eat their bread and drink their wine and in the night benign sleep. Don't miss the most unusual and exciting horror motorcycle film yet made. I come to offer you youth and fresh, fresh blood. Hey, we all know how we're going to die, baby. We're going to crash and burn. <laughs> Werewolves on Wheels, starring Steve Oliver and Severn Darden. The story of a motorcycle gang who ride into a new kind of hell. They ride wild, play hard, and fight brutal. I write your unholy name thrice in blood. Cry of Satan, you are one with them. Cry of Satan, you are one with them. Werewolves on Wheels, the most eerie, the most chilling, the most terrifying motorcycle horror film ever made. Their survival was the torch, as one by one they became terrifying, bloodthirsty werewolves on wheels. Don't miss the first horror motorcycle film ever made, Werewolves on Wheels. Rated R from the Fanfare Corporation.
That is an incredible motion picture. An entire town goes berserk when a giant underwater creature attacks all human life. That is a frightening experience. Don't miss that. This is the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I really appreciate everybody being here. I appreciate all the contributors, Kenny, Mark, and Captain Billy with his voicemails. Thank you for being part of this week's episode of the show. If you want to learn more about the show, go to monsterkidradio.net. You'll find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show, including Christopher Page's podcasts. How cool is that? Ten episodes, or ten episodes. (laughs) It's a lot more than that. Ten years of podcasting. How cool is that? That's awesome. So, yeah, if you head over to monsterkidradio.net, find everything you need to know there, links to everything, the Discord server, the Reddit, the Twitch, the Facebook page, the Facebook group, as well as links to our Twitch channel where you can watch monster movies or, or genre movies with us every week on Saturday over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. And on Tuesday, same place, twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. So go check that out. Also, over at monsterkidradio.net, it's a bunch of Amazon links. If you do any shopping on Amazon, please consider using those buttons because we are an Amazon affiliate. Everything that you purchase that way helps us out a little bit here at Monster Kid Radio. And when I say us, I mean me and my cat who really needs some dental work. So please consider supporting the show that way or becoming a patron over becoming a patron, becoming a patron over Patreon or However else you want to help out the show, I appreciate you. What's coming up next week on the show? I'm going to dip back into the recordings that were sent in by Mike R. from Monster Bash. So I've got some recordings. I'm not sure which one I'm going to pull yet, but we're going to go back to Monster Bash with another recording from Monster Bash, courtesy of Mike. So that's coming up next week here on the show. Come back for that, please. Until then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content. Of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the new song from the Volcanics, Volcanic Stump. That is copyright 2022, and you can find it on their new album, Concrete Carver. Look up the Volcanics online, High Tide Recordings, Bandcamp, and well, anywhere else they might turn around. Just, just Google search them; you'll find them. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.